Greetings, salutations, and welcome to Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. This is episode number 72. And in this episode, I sit down with John D. Simone to talk about his new novel, The Road to Delano. And what I love about our conversation is the way John reveals a part of history that maybe was covered in California history books, if you grew up in California as I did. But if you didn't, if you've ever wondered where the food that we get from the ground, the produce, how it goes from harvest to our shelves, the most important component to consider is the farm workers and the rights that they fought for. It's all part of the setting that John D. Simone has created as the backdrop for his novel, The Road to Delano. Join me now as we discuss not only the topic of his book, but the history of putting it together and why it is that the story doesn't end when you read the final page. Join me now for our conversation and stay tuned to the end for all the information you might want about how to let us know what you're thinking, what you thought, and how you can share it. This is Storytelling with Seth, episode number 72. And this is my conversation with John D. Sabote. And welcome to yet another episode of Storytelling with Seth. I am your host, Seth Singleton. And today I am joined by John D. Simone, who is a published writer, novelist, and teacher. We'll get more into that. What we're really here to talk about today is his current historical novel, The Road to Delano. I'm intrigued not only by the concept behind this story, but also uh, personal history that John and I had a chance to talk about before we started recording and that I know we'll be following up with when we get to that appropriate point within our discussion. But first, I just want to say, hi, John. Thanks for being on today. How are you? Seth, I'm great. Thank you for having me on your show today. My pleasure. Really appreciate you coming on and talking about your book and sharing the story that uh, I really uh, am intrigued by, especially with the you know connection that it has to California history. But before I go talking about it, while people still don't know what it is we're talking about, let's make that the first thing that we introduce here. John, what is your book, The Road to Delano, about? Okay. The Road to Delano is a historical novel set in 1968 during the grape strike led by Cesar Chavez. Um, most people are familiar with the grape strike, at least in some fashion. Uh, but in the midst of the grape strike, um, Cesar Chavez, what was unique about his, his approach was he knew that if they didn't use a different tactic than what had been used in the past hundred years, that it would fail. And his tactic was nonviolence based upon his, uh, his religious beliefs. He was a devout Catholic. And his experiences, what he's learned from Gandhi, uh, his conversations with Martin Luther King, and um, the influence of some Catholic priests who introduced him to a lot of writings about the use of, of nonviolence. And in the midst of the strike, it had been going on for three years. They've gotten nowhere. His followers were committed to nonviolence. But the growers' tactic of fomenting violence, hiring thugs to come in and cause trouble, was getting under the skin of a lot of the young men. And they were threatening to go out and 
get rifles and shoot back. When they shot at, they were going to return with a shot or a punch or uh, r- running their their trucks into the crops. And Cesar Chavez knew the moment that violence broke out on the part of the growers, their cause was dead. So he went on a 25-day hunger strike. He started a hunger strike. And excuse me, he started a fast. A hunger strike is different from a fast. And his was a fast based on his religious principle. He, in his fast is about looking at yourself. It's about examining yourself. And it's about self-discipline. And he fasted to implore his followers and his people, both the Filipinos and the Mexican-Americans, um, that violence was not the path. And his people responded um, heroically, and um, it still took another three years. So my novel, The Road to Delano, is set during this three-month period, two months before the fast and three months after the fast. So it's about a six-month period. Two high school boys who were in, who attend the Delano High School and one the son of a grower, one the son of a farm worker. They're both high school athletes. They're both their best friends, but they come from two different worlds. And um, they're both faced with many of the moral choices that Cesar Chavez has laid down about how, how to operate your life, how to solve your problems using nonviolence. Uh, so that's the premise of the book. It's about the moral choices uh, that these young two young protagonists, um, Jack, Jack uh, Duncan and Adrian Sanchez, have to make. And that's why the tagline is what I call it. It's, it's the road to Delano is the path that Jack and Adrian have to take to find their their destiny and their duty. I appreciate you for correcting without pointing it out explicitly that I was saying the name incorrectly. The Road to Delano. Thank you. Delano, yes. Uh, (laughs) um, Interesting choice to set um, the tension of this story within an already tense period. The three months before and after um, this decision to uh, use hunger and fasting as a way uh, to galvanize and sort of uh, build strength among the community and, and show the resolve that's going to be needed for the, the work ahead. Uh, was that a, uh, an active choice? Was that something that developed Absolutely. during the process? of? Okay. Absolutely. And, um, and it ties into my teaching. I was teaching um, uh, freshman composition at a university in Southern California and in one of the classes, I got to use, a, you know, students have to write essays, if you remember, you probably remember that. And so we used a book. Um, I was able to pick a book. It was on um, the history of civil disobedience. And I didn't know really, uh, you know, as I previewed the book and read through it, um, it was the different, starting with Socrates and went all the way through Martin Luther King. But along the way, one of them was... Caesar Chavez, and I had no idea, I knew about the grape strike, but I had no idea of his commitment to nonviolence, that it was based in religious principles, um, that it was how deep-seated that was. And so I became intrigued and began reading about it, and I was determined that this is, this is, the, this is the field I want to plow. 
in my next novel. And I had not done a true historical novel before. Um, I'd done some fantasy, um, um, magical realism type novels. This is a true historical novel. And um, yeah, that was, it was a conscious choice to, um, to do that, to set it during that time period. Thank you. And to get an idea of when that occurred for you, what was the time frame? How long ago was it that this oh my first gosh. idea started fomenting a bit, it sounds like? Yeah. Um, you know, ideas germinate, I, I find, very slowly um, yes. um, to develop into a full story. I mean, you know, you're a writer. You know, you have ideas at least once a week. You get a good idea. Oh, that would make a great story, you think. And then, you know, but years to work out the plot because I wanted it to be historical. So um, I would say that I began planning this around 2010, 2011. I began workshopping it in 2011, 2012. It was 2012. I had a draft of the complete novel. And uh, I won a Nora Mailer scholarship. I went back to uh, Providence, Rhode Island for a month. And I got to just read it and tear it apart. And then um, my wife got very ill in 2014, so I had to put it on hold for a year. It was essentially done at that point. So it was a long road. It was <laughs> not to use a, you know, a word of the book, but it was a long journey to get this published. And, um, and it's a, a journey to get it out there and get people to read it. Now, <clears throat> I can imagine that for everyone, when it comes to telling a story, generally, uh, I feel the same way. There's a, a, a process of inspiration. Like you said, we have these ideas for a story, but then there's something that sort of makes it this nagging, itching, scratching, I can't stop thinking about writing about wanting this story to come alive, uh, to tell it, to share it, to... Um, kind of find a way to give it life on the page. What was that inspirational process for like you? You've discovered uh, his role in nonviolent protest. You begin to learn more about the man. And then you start either looking at this time period or at the, uh, the idea of, of this story, which was um, the desire of workers' rights and the challenges facing uh, the two main characters of our story and their journey? Um, I would say that the, the, ins the inspiration was there. There's an idea. Here's a man who sets about nonviolence had never been used in any labor action in the history of the United States. So here's a man who tries to break a hundred year um, cycle of events in the Central Valley of labor unrest, never resolved. It's always been resolved really in, in the favor of the growers. Um, and he chooses to do something totally unorthodox. And I saw it as very heroic. So really just a lot of reading and Seth, it was just so much reading um, <laughs> because there's lots of books written about Cesar Chavez. But you can't – I didn't want to make him one of the main characters of the book. I wanted him to be the moral premise of the book. So 
uh, a lot of research. I found a lot of my um, material at used bookstores, um, newspaper editorials in the library in Delano, um, um, conversations with people, interviewing people, um, touring the town, touring the sites, um, less important, more important. But the used bookstores, I found stories that had just been kind of shelved away. That's where I got Sugar Duncan from. Mm. Um, the high school kids uh, interviewing a, uh, a a man my age now um, who grew up in Delano during that time, was in high school. What was it like? Um, and then continuing to ferret out the details and getting it right until I had a story that really buzzed, you know, that really moved along. So, you know, originally the manuscript was probably 150,000 words. Um, I worked with an editor, was able to get it down to 120,000 words. Some said that was still too long, you know, but, and, but that's what it ended up being. And it ended up being a, um, you know, a thrilling story. It does sound like one that I'm looking forward to getting more into where the the tensions and the the thrilling came from. But I'm I'm going to go back for just a minute to this idea that you brought up that I think is really powerful, which is the choice not to make him the central point of the story, but instead to use him as a moral premise. I really yeah. like that idea because uh, it, it gives this really intriguing backdrop to the story of these two characters. And uh, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on what that process was like, making him the the moral premise, but then also about his des- about the destination, Delano, which was for Mr. Chavez, um, a hometown of sorts. And uh, but just starting with the moral premise, if you don't mind, where did that well, framework come from? Well, there's a a pretty uh, say pretty. It's a it's a book that has been on my shelf for a long time, and um, it's called The Moral Premise hmm. and written by um, a Hollywood screenwriter. And I, I remember being influenced a lot by that. In other words, his idea was if you have a strong moral premise for the story, it'll, it'll stand the test of time. How do you come up with a moral premise? And the moral premise is there there has to be. And I, without being cliched, there has to be some some pitched battle between right and wrong. I mean, boiling it down to the to the to the nub. I mean, every story has some type of battle between two people, or we don't have a story. And um, this story had so many elements that were just you know really just ripped right out of a Hollywood screenplay. But it's not a screenplay. It's real life. You know, you had people living in um, in absolute poverty who picked our food that we eat, that we buy in the grocery store every day and enjoy in our house. But they couldn't even afford to buy it, Mm. you know. So the injustice of it really just struck at me. There's a there's a real strong moral premise. And that centers in Cesar Chavez's uh, ethic. So his ethic of self-sacrifice. So around that, because that's what a fast is, it's about self-sacrifice. So around that, I built characters who had to respond to it. So um, I don't know. 
how I, I really toyed with the idea of making him a main character, but I didn't know really how to do it. And I don't think it would be as satisfying. So what I did is I built arcs around it. So Jack has his story arc and Adrian has his story arc. Um, and, you know, if the, if their listeners are not familiar with story arcs, that's really the essence of storytelling. And the story arc is, you know, a character begins at point A, emotionally, physically, um, spiritually, and through a series of events at the end of the book, he's at point Z, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, or one of those or two of those, um, the best books, it's all three. And so Jack has a definitive story arc, and I wanted him to realize what the what standing what using i wanted him to realize the moral decision required to use nonviolence to solve a problem well and i think this segues perfectly into talking about those characters because now that you've made the conscious decision that yes i could make this about the heroic struggle that you already have come to Um, learn about Cesar Chavez and the methods that he employed, his form of resistance. But then you decide, okay, well, I'm not going to do that, but I am going to use that as this moral premise for the story, and I'm going to use it through these two characters. So let's go ahead and take this natural opportunity and then move into who these two characters are and what the struggle we're dealing with, because I've been given the opportunity to read the blurb and and get a chance to get a synopsis of the book from the great information that is available about The Road to Delano. But for those who aren't familiar with who Jack is and why it is he finds a companion to join him on this road, would be really intriguing for listeners who are curious about this book, but would like to know more about the actual characters that we're talking about in this story. So, Jack... Um, Duncan is the son of a uh, major farm, a major grower, and his father is, uh, his nickname is Sugar, and because he was a a prominent gambler and everyone uh, just knew him that way because he was very sweet the way he played, Uh, and he was very kind about taking your money, so they called him Sugar, but that's in his early years. And the name stuck with him. And Sugar Duncan is based on an actual character that I found a couple of essays about who um, tried to change the way growers treated their uh, farm workers. And he was uh, unceremoniously unceremoniously, uh, run out of the valley. So uh, he is dead by the time Jack turns 18. He's been killed mysteriously. And um, Jack is now a high school senior, and uh, his mother has kept a lot from him. And, um, you know, the circumstances of her father, of his father's death and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and one day he's confronted with that, you know, possibility that his father didn't die naturally. And um, so that begins his quest. But on top of that, He's a um, top baseball player uh, writing for a scholarship. His mother wants him to win the scholarship and get out of town and not get involved in the politics. It's not, she said it's not worth it. So um, 
Adrian is also on the baseball team. His father is a farm worker who is a strike leader. And um, his father wants him to get an education and get out of town. And he's on the road to a scholarship. So both of these have a very promising future. And what would make them sacrifice their futures for a morally um, superior calling? You know, um, and these are the choices I put before them. What would you sacrifice that for? So I think the best books put our characters, you know, in deep moral difficulties and um, uh, choices that they have to make. And that's that's the arc of um, Jack's life, and that's the arc of Adrian's life. So the trouble that comes their way is um, adult trouble, and they have to confront it like an adult. So they're not faced with... They're faced with the, the typical temptations of a high schooler, you know. Are you going to have sex with your girlfriend? Or are you going to smoke cigarettes after school? Or are you going to, uh, you know, you're, you're a baseball prospect, you know, or are you going to go out drinking with your friends and get into trouble? And, I mean, those are choices that have been well written about. Mm-hmm. Um, the moral choices these young men face, I think, are, are deeper and wider and have, um, you know, longer repercussions. So, uh, lifelong repercussions. So that was, that was what I wanted to do was to, so Jack's arc is to discover what's really morally right. Adrian's arc is to decide what he wants to sacrifice. And, um, so the book essentially, you know, is about what will you, what will you sacrifice for a higher calling. If and I, I like the idea. Yeah. Well, what I find really interesting is that it's about whether or not these characters are going to be um, explicitly with Jack's example, going to be selfish or if they're going to be selfless. Cause well, Jack's- exactly. And, and who, and the moral center of the book is a man who is acting selflessly. Mm. Which so provides that a- moral premise. <laughs> which, which comes back to the moral premise. And so, you know, um, you know, the moral premise is, is that there's a, um, there's a strong, um, there's a strong urge, not urge, there's a strong requirement to make a choice. And, um, you know, you have all different types of genres where, you know, people are solving a mystery or they're trying to, uh, you know, unravel the puzzle of someone's death. But a lot of those characters, you know, don't have to go through any arc of change. And that's what I love about the historical novel um, is that you can put your characters through this this arc of change. You can put them into a crucible where they have to be transformed or they, they have to transform their life or they have to be or they will be transformed and buried by the circumstances. So to me, those are the most compelling stories. With good reason. I mean, when the stakes are so high, you're talking about what will be a a character defining moment 
once uh, these characters have looked back on this time period and what their future became based on the choices they made. It's where the best storytelling comes from, I think. Um, I always love this uh, suggestion, which was when you really heighten it for a reader is you place the character in a situation where things aren't sustainable the way they are. Something will have to change, and the choices the characters make in response to that are going to define the story they're telling to us and showing us through their actions, through their uh, decisions. And I'm intrigued that you, you know, chose a, a really challenging time period. I'm also just keeping in mind this idea of the three months before and after the fast and, and what those tensions can uh, bring into the story, can change about what the atmosphere is like. Because that's something I think a lot of people can relate to right now. We are in an altered atmosphere as you and I are having this conversation. Okay. The world that we um, are used to knowing has been drastically changed. And six to seven weeks later, we're still looking around saying, how much longer does this last? And what will it be like afterwards? Well, you're capturing an idea like that, which is this period before and then during and after the fast. And and because of that, what you're able to show that is that transition of actions based on the atmosphere, based on the environment and what the circumstances mean for your actions in three months earlier, three months later, right in the middle and and what those challenges will look like for the characters who are telling those stories. I can only imagine you had to do an extensive amount of research. How much time would you say, you know, if you could quantify it <laughs> from the, uh, from the early days to when it was, this is all I'm doing seven days a week as I, you know, invest further and deeper. Well, you know, like any writer, I'm, I'm always reading. And I would say during this period, um, of research. I was reading one to two books a week. Some of these autobiographies or biographies or histories are not easy reading. And then um, for a considerable amount of time, I was searching. Um, I wanted to include the voices of the growers. And it was very challenging to find uh, any of the growers um, writing. They didn't, you know, don't tend to write books. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And, um, you know, you have all different types of genres where, you know, people are solving a mystery or they're trying to, uh, you know, unravel the puzzle of someone's death. But a lot of those characters, you know, don't have to go through any arc of change. And that's what I love about the historical novel. Um, is that you can put your characters through this this arc of change. You can put them into a crucible where they have to be transformed, or they they have to transform their life, or they have to be, or they will be transformed and buried by the circumstances. So, to me, those are the most compelling stories. With good reason. I mean, when the stakes are so high, you're talking about what will be a, a character defining moment once uh, these characters have looked back on this time period and what their future became based on the choices they made. It, it's where exactly. the best storytelling comes from, I think. Um, I always love this uh, suggestion, which was when you really heighten it for a reader is you place the character in a situation where things aren't sustainable the way they are. 
something will have to change and the choices the characters make in response to that are going to define the story they're telling to us and showing us through their actions, through their uh, decisions. And I'm intrigued that you, you know, chose a, a really challenging time period. I'm also just keeping in mind this idea of the three months before and after the fast and, and what those tensions can uh, bring into the story can change about what the atmosphere is like, because that's something I think a lot of people can relate to right now. We are in an altered atmosphere as you and I are having this conversation. Oh, yeah. The world that we um, are used to knowing has been drastically changed. And six to seven weeks later, we're still looking around saying, how much longer does this last? And what will it be like afterwards? Well, you're capturing an idea like that, which is this period before and then during and after the fast. And and because of that, what you're able to show that is that transition of actions based on the atmosphere, based on the environment and what the circumstances mean for your actions in three months earlier, three months later, right in the middle. And and what those challenges will look like for the characters who are telling those stories. I can only imagine you had to do an extensive amount of research. How much time would you say, you know, if you could quantify it <laughs> from the uh, from the early days to when it was, this is all I'm doing seven days a week as I, you know, invest further and deeper. Well, you know, like any writer, I'm, I'm always reading. And I would say during this period, um, of research, I was reading one to two books a week. Some of these autobiographies or biographies or histories are not easy reading. And then um, for a considerable amount of time, I was searching. Um, I wanted to include the voices of the growers. And it was very challenging to find uh, any of the growers um, writing. They didn't, you know, don't tend to write books. Um, it was very satisfying, and I did have uh, an insider's help at towards the end who read the manuscript and gave me some some uh, clarification on certain conversations. It just made it stronger. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that um, is to be very clear on is that this was never a hunger strike, which is a hunger strike is against your, uh, you know, authority figures. They do a hunger strike in jail to 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 um, uh, demonstrate against the treatment. Um, but his was a fast, which is a religious um, exercise of internal reflection, self-discipline, you know, looking at yourself, uh, you know, how am I going to, you know, finding strength to to believe that you can actually live an, a life of nonviolence and you can do this in the midst of people that hate you. So Cesar Chavez said quite a few times, you know, we're, it's a revolution and we're starting a social uh, campaign that, you know, once we started, we can't go back. But he also said other things. He said, you know, if we hate them, then they'll win. And that's where well, I believe. Think about the, that. If yeah. you hate them, we will win. So you have to love them. He said, what you don't understand is the growers don't understand is we don't hate them. You know, they're our employers. We work for them. They, they pay our wages. So um, uh, 
and it, they didn't understand that. And um, he said, that's the, that's one of the things we have to convince them. You know, we want to work with them, but we don't, we want to be treated equally like other workers in America. And yet they're dealing with someone who, as you've stated earlier, didn't want to see them as equals to negotiate across a table with because they're already acting from a position of power. The, the, the growers feel that their position attains them um, the right to maintain authority and to be absolute in that authority. Whereas and, the, and yes, that? And, and, and part of that, Seth, is mm. um, a history that goes back to the 30s. So that is not just happenstance thinking. But in 1934, when um, FDR got passed uh, through Congress, what's called the National Labor Relations Act, that um, put to, to the end all, most of the strife, most of the violent strikes, because that act allowed workers to um, gather together to vote if they wanted to take, if they wanted to collectively bargain with the employer. So pri prior to that, all strikes, most all strikes were extremely violent because the workers had to, you know, destroy property or, um, you know, threaten to burn down um, or threaten to kill, you know, uh, employers or destroy factories to get the, um, the employers, you know, to buckle under to their terms. But with once that was granted, workers could get together. It's a law of the land. They could take a vote and talk about unionization and employers. It was illegal for them to um, um, to disallow it. However, in order for FDR to get that passed, which was a benchmark piece of legislation in our country, the Southern Democrats refused to sign off to, to, to vote on it, and, he, and it needed the Southern Democrats to pass unless they excluded two categories of workers, domestic workers and farm workers. And you can just guess why they excluded those. Exactly. So and yet... The thought of Southern farmers sitting down with their black sharecroppers and negotiating, just it wasn't going to fly. I mean, and the, the Southern sharecropper, the blacks, the Negroes in the South at that time um, um, were enslaved to the land through indentured servitude. And um, and so were and the poor whites were the same way. So, and then all the maids in the South were black. So, you're, you know, they're not going to sit down and discuss wages with their maid. And they weren't so going to allow this to upset the power. They weren't going to allow it to happen. So they far. were not going to allow it to happen. So Cesar Chavez and Larry Italong and all those before them since, you know, were, were um, in an unequal situation and they had the farmers had the law, the law on their side that the the far, uh, farm workers did not have the right to hold a vote on their land like other workers did. And they're just saying we want to be treated like other workers. So, so there's some real deep issues here 
that go back to a very racist past. Um, and so they did not want to allow this because it meant they're giving up their last, you know, ability to, to, um, to control their destiny. At least that's the way the farmers, uh, the growers saw it, which ended up being not true. And, and also based on this history, it's, it's easy to see that those coming into reading this book are going to find um, it quite possible to side with the argument that much of the decisions were simply based on race because there had been a, a history of this being a part of the decision-making process and that even though there's also the business side of the future, that there's a history that it's being reflected against. And that can make it um, really easy to fall on one side or the other of the argument based on how you're viewing that history and what you see as the implications of it leading up to now the movement uh, led by Cesar Chavez and in collaboration with Larry. Um, it along. Thank you, it along. Uh, it, his name was, the very ending of it was escaping me, and I was like, I'm not trying to mispronounce this guy's name. Um, and, and I'm intrigued because I can only imagine that these were some really harsh revelations through the research that are, are um, documented and, and concrete uh, examples just by what people were able to provide in, in the examples that were given. Yet I'm, I'm also sure that there must have been some surprises along the way with the research where, you know, you go into something thinking you have a general idea and that you're looking for ways to inform that. But then there's also that process of discovery where the realization of what you know and what you learn have to uh, come to a bit of a compromise for your thinking because what you're adding to that information now is not only informing what you're going to do with this new information, but how it may or may not change your story. Did you come across any moments like that where going into this, you were telling one story and your discovery in the research made you stop and say, there's more I need to consider here. And it's actually going to change the shape of uh, the narrative either between these men or, or some other part of the story that you were uh, intending to go one way. But the research revealed something different. Well, um, the plot evolved, and it evolved as I became more familiar with the subject. And I'm trying to think back if there was one um, defining moment. Um, and it's okay uh, if there wasn't, because I know that you well, know these I things are like say, you know, grains of sand was, trickling. <laughs> I, I was, I, I would say, it was when the. Um, when I read uh, in depth about his first fast, because in 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 uh, the book, the big book I read by uh, Jacques Levy, who uh, lived with him practically for four years and wrote that book for five years, um, which is a bar his only the first biography of him of Caesar Chavez. It's kind of you know it takes about five pages and is dealing with it, but as you as I discovered more about it. Um, and that episode and what he went through, um, it was much more meaningful to me, you know, how his commitment to nonviolence. So also, it was really interesting to learn about Bobby Kennedy, Kennedy's involvement with um, the California farm worker movement. Going what was back, your discovery like that? I mean, um, you know, well, I'm, Bobby I'm, Kennedy. His, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby Kennedy. Um, when he was 
a senator, uh, after he, you know, was attorney general, he resigned that. He ran for New York Senate. He, he was a senator, and he was probably the sharpest Kennedy of them all. Jack certainly was the most charismatic, but um, he was a, a pit bull of an attorney, and his real forte was, you know, getting on a committee and examining a problem and finding a solution to the problem, and he was on the um, Senate Agricultural Committee, and he, after the strike started in 62, 63, he came out here with some of his colleagues and conducted hearings. And uh, he had the sheriff of Kern County uh, and a couple of the growers um, and the attorney general for this for the county um, in the hearings. And he was questioning the sheriff of Kern County, you know, you know, how do you arrest people? Why do you arrest people? What's your process here? And the sheriff said, well, you know, when um, there's a strike going on and. The workers are picketing across the street, and and uh, violence breaks out, and the and the um, the farm workers, you know, starts striking back. He goes, "We swoop in and, and arrest the farm workers." And he goes, well, "Wait a minute, hold on a second. Who started the violence?" Well, he says, "You know, most of the time it's it's the growers. You know, they they're upset that that people are walking out of their fields." And he says, "Well, let me see if I get this right." The growers start the violence. The farm workers um, um, reciprocate, and you arrest the farm workers. He goes, "Yeah, we arrest them for their own safety." And uh, sounds a little bit like the old uh, the old theory that I would hear described in NFL games. It's never the guy who gets smacked first; it's the guy who retaliates that the referee there always you go. there. You goes, go. Hey, there, there's the guy. You're the problem, and everyone goes, "What about the other guy?" We got it on replay right here. <laughs> well, and, and, and this sounds and, like the uh, historical, you know, uh, precedent. Well, it's, it's what how Bobby responded to it. He says, um, goes, we're going to take a break here now, Sheriff. And he goes, what I'd like you to do is while we're taking a break is I'd like you and the attorney general, um, the district attorney, to go back to your office and read the Constitution of the United States of America and then come back and tell me if what you're doing is legal. Nice tactic. And um, there's no record that I could find that the sheriff showed up for the second session. But um, I just thought, okay, here is another powerful voice. And so, um, you know, Bobby Kennedy came out again in 68 to um, be with Cesar Chavez to break the fast. And so um, I, I got in as many historical characters as I could. So anyway, I'm, um, I just thought it was just a thrilling moment in our, in our um, state history, in our national history, that it's just really forgotten. And um, that's why I wrote about it. Well, with good reason. I, I do believe that there is a, a lack of recognition and understanding. I think for many people, it might be a bit surprising now to look back and realize that there was such uh, a uh, almost strategic decision made on the part of those who felt, sure, we're going to allow certain workers to uh, have collective bargaining as a right. But these two groups explicitly, 
implicitly. <laughs> We're going to deny this. We're going to say no, these two groups of workers, so that so many years later, they'll have to uh, form an alliance to fight for their own rights independently. That's and, right. and that's something that maybe uh, I'm sure a few listeners, those who potentially could be younger than me, and even those who are older, that there's parts of history that, for whatever reason, don't receive the same degree of illumination. And yet, when it is illuminated, there's this recognition of understanding for looking around and saying, why are things the way they are? Well, look at the history that's led us, you know, from different points and these milestones. And you're talking about two very important ones. One, the uh, decision to not allow farm workers as well as domestic workers to have those rights. But then the struggle that they had to take on decades later because of that decision. And um, well, in, in some some ways, even less than a decade or two to to then begin their own journey and and the process that was required for it. So that that is something that I think might be a a really important eye opener for a lot of people. But I'm I'm also intrigued by Bobby Kennedy's role and the idea of of this plot. I'm also curious though that this started with as you pointed out, one of those things that happens to so many writers an idea for a story. But then there's the process of of taking it farther. Than, mm. uh, than just, wouldn't that be a nice idea? Or, you know, this would be a great story if I only had the time, if I only had uh, the resources, if I only had the research. Well, you chose to walk down that path of gathering more research, doing a little bit of digging, learning from the discovery, pushing on. And everyone's writing process is different. What was yours like from from, you know, developing this this uh, two year process of coming up with a draft, uh, what those stages were like and then and what it was like after you had had that draft. And now you're turning around saying, OK, what is it I want to do with this? What is it that I'm I'm trying to uh, make the final shape of this story look like? Yeah. Could you walk us through just a little bit of. of sure. Things the, we can um, you know, discover. The historical through. characters aren't really the hard ones um, because, you know, you can't really I, I, you know, I think it's important not to change um, any of their decisions. So it's the arc of the of the fictional characters that uh, wrap around the historical characters that um, getting their arc right, getting their emotional responses right. So. A lot of workshops, a lot of um, a book like this. It took me probably the third or fourth draft before I really understood and was able to hone down to the theme of the story. I mean, it was there, um, but it's cutting it. For me, it's cutting it and cutting it and cutting it until you get down to the real essence of the story. And without taking out any of the characters. So a lot of drafts. I workshopped it all over the country. Um, you know, every summer there's writing workshops. And I don't mean conferences where you go and hear lectures, but workshops where you sit in a room. You've been through them. And, um, you know, you, 10 other people at a table and you're all reading each other's work and you're sequestered away for a week or two weeks or whatever that is. And I was fortunate to work with some really, really good people 
And I just kept honing the draft and honing the draft um, until I thought it was right. And then um, I went outside and got um, an editor that helped me. And um, he was up in Berkeley and he read it and he told, he emailed me, he said, okay, I'm ready to read it. You can come up to my house and meet with me. So I flew up there and sat in his living room and he had the whole manuscript. He goes, uh, what I did, John, for you is crossed out all the scenes you don't need. And that really helped me because that's my, that was the biggest challenge. I got all this stuff in there. What do I take out? So I did one more draft and it was really tight. And that's where I got Cesar Chavez's scenes tight and um, where I got uh, Adrian's arc clear and Jack's arc clear and Ella is in there. There's love interest, but it's not necessarily a love story. So four, five, six drafts, and then I got an agent. And when she get rejections, she'd send me the reasons. And so I, I started revising it again and revising it. So, gosh, I can't even remember how many times I revised it. But through the process, I'll tell you, I've learned so much that um, writing the sequel probably will not be as hard. But still, writing a book is hard work. But I don't think it'll be as long a process. And you mentioned taking it around the country and also your uh, editor that you had the chance to work with in Berkeley. Is there anyone that you want to take this moment to acknowledge for insights, um, uh, any other sort of ways that working and collaborating with them, um, listening to their uh, critiques and hearing their questions and well, coming up with the fight. answers? Sure, I've, I've been in a writing group, the same writing group for 10, I don't know, over 10 years. And they've all read it and read parts of it and reread it and read it. I mean, without my writing group, um, I couldn't have got as far as I did. So every f spring, I'd apply for a writer's conference or a workshop somewhere in, the, in California. And they're all over California. You have Squaw Valley, you have Napa Valley, you have... Uh, the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, you got them down in San Diego, they're all over. Mm -hmm. And um, and I would go to those, and then I'd come home with all types of notes. I do remember specifically working with Ron Carlson. He used to run, he used to run the writing program over at UCI, so he'd always show up. And he read probably the first 100 pages of it, and he said, John, when you go to sell this book, call it historical fiction. You'll have an easier time selling it, and you'll have uh, a niche that you can market it in. And so I've always sold it as that and marketed it as that, and it helped me understand really what I was writing. And um, there's, a, there's a, a group of – there's people that don't want to – their book to be called historical fiction. But if you're writing about history and it's more than 50 years old, then you could call it historical fiction if you want. And um, I chose to call it historical fiction. I slotted in that way. And uh, it found its way, you know, through the process. And so I've, I've, that's 
I don't know if that summarizes it, but it was a long <laughs> process. I worked with so many people. Um, Alan Chose, Chose, he used to be, he's a writer back east. He died, um, unfortunately, before I could get this out. Mm. But he loved the book. And he was a regular contributor to NPR and helped me with it. Um, and Marita Goldman was instructor at um, uh, at um, Norma Mailer. She helped me. Hmm. Um, so there's there was just so many and. Everyone, it was just like a big puzzle, putting it together. But once I got to the halfway part and got that right, what I call the midpoint turning, mm-hmm. the rest of the book fell into place. Well, that's got to be a wonderful feeling, sort of yeah, being able just, to recognize it just took, that. just took time to write. And then it was about <laughs> taking stuff out. But... Um, I just want to say one thing about the reviews. So I've gotten before this um, coronavirus, uh, the reviews were coming in pretty steady. I have almost 80. I have over 80 reviews on um, Goodreads. Yeah. Um, all of them positive. Uh, and some of them don't like the ending. And I'm not going to talk about the ending because <laughs> you need to get there. Um some of them don't like the gambling scenes, but the gambling scenes are part of it because I see the gambling and the baseball as a biggest. The gambling, baseball, and farming, they're all games. Mm. Each one has its rules. Mm-hmm. So I try to make metaphorical allusions to games and how games are played and the rules of the game and how important the rules are and those live by the rules and those that don't live by the rules. And that seems to be some people get it. Some people don't, but that's, that was the process. Understood. And I can only imagine that once you've gone through this process, once you've completed the book and it's published and you're getting those reviews back, that getting a great letter from someone like Chavez's personal secretary, that, you know, aside from those typos. And when you said that, I was like, you know, she just sort of like put her finger on the pressure point that almost every writer is, you know, sort of struggling with is when they read through it and find those typos, there's that feeling of really I missed you that cannot one. even imagine <laughs> how many times editors went through this book. I mean, <laughs> and the fact that a typo, sl- you know, slid through. Well, uh, you know, someone like her is she mentioned it. She's a secretary. She's also a writer. And um, I told her the next volume, I'll make sure that, that you get to proofread it. <laughs> and, you know, was there anyone else besides her who is part of the Chavez family and gave you any response, reaction, recognition well, or acknowledgement? Mark, Mark Grossman was um, Cesar Chavez's personal um, speechwriter and aide, aide de camp, I would say. He worked with them for 10 years. And... Um, he still works with the foundation and I got him to read it. And what I did was I wanted Paul Chavez 
Caesar's son to read it. Mm. And I wrote him a letter about six months before it was to be published. I'm thinking that should be long enough that someone could just give me an answer, yes or no. Two months before the pub bait or the, the date that it went to the printer, I got a call from Mark Grossman and he said, you know, Paul doesn't really want to do it. He wants me to vet it. Um, so I send him a book and, you know, he's a, he's a, these are all nonfiction writers. You know, these are all people close to the movement, um, doing speeches and articles. And so I, you know, once he established a relationship, I called him every Friday or Saturday morning. And say, hey, Mark, how you doing? He, oh, yeah, I'm reading. I got to about page nine. I'm thinking, hey, we got six weeks here. You know, if <laughs> if, 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 if you're going to someone's going to give me a forward here or help me. So finally, you know, from fire got under him and um, he read it and he goes, wow, I really like it. He goes, I just have some suggestions. So his suggestions were very powerful. The um, just honing a few conversations, I would say that I got 99% of it right. And um, there was one scene that, you know, well, that's not historical. I said, yeah, but look, you know, you have to you have to move things around to make it work. And he goes, yeah, they did the same thing in the Chavez movie. So <laughs> then he introduced me to Paul Chavez right after it came out. Oh, wow. And uh, we were invited to drive up to Keene, and we had lunch with him. And uh, my wife and I sat with Paul Chavez and his son, Andre, and the president of the Chavez Foundation. And it was just really wonderful. And we had a great lunch, and he gave us a tour of the monument. So, yeah. Uh, they put the book in their library. Not library, but in their store. I don't know. I gave him a signed copy. I don't know if he's read it. But hmm. everyone around him has read it and seems. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Quite happy with it. So um, it's a great response. It's a great reaction. I mean, you know, they're you know, just Mark's alone. There there is, um, you know, people that don't read a lot of novels, you know, it's hard for them. They've lived it. So to read a novel, you know, it's like, well, it's made up, you know, it's not real. But Paul Chavez lived this story mm -hmm. and um, he told me so many interesting stories about his father. And, you know, you can't get them all down. But so there's nothing really new to him. Um, but it's about it's about keeping the, the legacy alive. That's how that's how I put it to him, you know, about opening up to a wider audience and certainly readers from all over uh, um, America, Australia, England are reading this and saying, wow, I never knew anything about this. So um, that's, that's gratifying. Immensely. So I would imagine. And yeah. I can, I can guess that that would be a, a great, response that you would be hoping readers would would respond with that that sense of this is something i didn't know about but now that i do i'm more informed i have a better understanding Absolutely. is that your is that your hope for readers well that was all the way along you mm -hmm. know if you can entertain and educate in the same breath then i think you you've done a good job mm. 
and um uh, you know a lot of um a lot of our media is just pure entertainment and i don't say all of it but one thing a historical novel can do is take a look back at history reframe an, an incident that you might be vaguely familiar with and ferret out the meaning and i believe that's what i was able to accomplish i think um you know that's really helpful that you're you're able to you know see where this story fits how it takes place you know and and i love that you got that great encouragement from mr carlson about make it a historical fiction you'll just Absolutely. have an easier time but if if that hadn't been your choice if you could at some point choose uh, another genre to uh, place this story in or to include with historical fiction what else would you like uh, readers to consider that this is a historical fiction but it's not just a historical fiction it's got another element to it another genre that's folded into it and i think of that especially because the part where you mentioned thrilling which to me brings to mind the idea of suspense um but if that isn't perhaps the the best fit is there another genre you would love to well, uh, see this book thriller, recognized in? Thriller is a is a. I'm I'm not sure the thriller is a is a genre in itself, and this is maybe a whole different discussion. But um, Ken Follett defines a historical thriller as you always have your characters in danger. And um, Ken Follett is probably one of my favorite historical novelists. Not the only one, but. He he's writes, a good one. <laughs> he's a good one. And um, uh, his characters are constantly in danger. And he calls it, you know, I write historical thrillers. I, you know, underneath that, the, he also writes historical romance. I mean, he's got romance in there. He's got history. He's got um, uh, danger. So I knew that really to keep the reader's interest that there has to be danger. So there's a mystery here. Jack needs to find out what really happened to his father. There's a coming of age story. There's a social justice story. So anytime you can mash up genres and make it all work, I think you've done a good job. And that's maybe what took me so long as I'm Threw in everything but the kitchen sink. And, um, That's okay. That gives it so, a, you know, you know, a lot of pieces. The, and in the in the Central Valley, there are not just wars over labor. There's wars over water. True. And so you know, there's question about water rights in this book. Um. So a lot of, you know, it's it's a lot of issues. So I tried to get everything in that that um was pertinent to it to keep the thriller aspect up the danger to everyone up the moral danger to adrian and jack are they going to get their scholarships the moral danger to caesar chavez is he going to survive his his fast and um you know the other dangers throughout the book so uh, the thriller um the mystery and under the ages of the wider category of historical. And also a little coming of age. Well, definitely coming of age. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, so, I mean, I think the thing that I like about that is that, 
that gives so many different elements for readers to consider who haven't had a chance to read The Road to uh, Delano. And that when they are looking at it, sure, historical fiction is a good starting point. But it's also part of a spectrum that this story encompasses. Absolutely. That it includes all those other pieces as well. And a story with spectrum, it allows you to engage with it on many different levels, from a knowledge base, an emotional, um, and then, of course, the, the tension that can make thrilling moments feel so compelling and lead to that page turning. Um, and I thought it was important what you said about artists so much is about entertainment. I heard it once described that an artist's responsibility is to simply capture your attention. And then along the way, if they stumble onto truth, well, that's a blessing that both get to experience. But that it go. starts with, how can I get and then hold your attention? But you're doing it from a, a place of how can I get and hold your attention about something you don't know and what that discovery of learning about it and what its impact and implications um had at the time and are still continuing to have now what it means to you that 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 really invites an opportunity to not just uh, entertain but as you said to also educate in the process um I, i'm intrigued because before this you had written um novels as well but you'd also recently been involved with a couple of co-authoring projects and i was just curious what that transition was like going um, from your most recent co-authoring to then The Road to Delano and well, you know, how as that a, went um, along the way. As a novelist, as, as you know, um, if you don't strike it rich, the only way to do it is just keep writing more books. And so I got into co-authoring as a way of, of um, um, surviving, you know, paying my way. So it's what I do as my day job, so to speak, and, and writing novels is my evening job or morning job. Or whatever. And um, uh, so I've gotten some very interesting projects along the way. Um, and I fell into writing memoirs. And it's really interesting because the contemporary memoir is so much like a novel except you don't have to make up the characters. You know, I'm writing someone, I interview them, they're the character. And then I'm, I, I just don't have to create it. I just have to make the story interesting. But in terms of plot points, in terms of what I call story arc, what is called story arc, um, I incorporate story arcs into memoirs in the same way that I incorporate story arcs into, into fiction. And that's been one of the things I've discovered doing memoirs. Um, you'll hear editors when they're talking about, um, you know, the type of memoirs they're looking for. They say, we want memoirs, you know, that have a story to them, that take us somewhere, that, um, you know, what they want is something with a definable arc. As I defined it earlier, you know, you have a character in a situation at the beginning has one set of values or is in one situation emotionally, spiritually and physically and through their effort or happenstance or or, um, you know, their gut, their will and determination, you know, they um, figure out how to solve their problems and um and at the end of the story, they're in a completely different place. In that book, The Moral Premise, the author calls 
every story with a moral premise has a moment of grace. And that moment of grace is when the character figures out how to solve their problem. Think about that, whether that comes from God or whether that comes from inspiration or whether that comes from a mentor or whether it comes from um, reading a book. But think of all the stories you've read. At some point, the main character figures out how to solve either their problem or the puzzle they're trying to solve. And that's the moment of grace in the story. And all good memoirs have the exact same thing. Hmm. I've read so many memoirs that if you didn't know it was true, you would think it's a novel because they're using the same story arc. So um, I don't see it as a transition. I still write um, co-authoring. I'm, I'm at this moment finishing up um, a book for a client on his story. And we, what I do first with a client is we flesh out the story arc. And then I interview them and we put the meat on the bones and we write their story. And I've had some real success. We've gotten some traditionally published and, um, and have done very well. Well, what I like the most uh, about what you're talking about is how story arcs are something that's so translatable between co-authoring and authoring your own works. And keeping that in mind makes the process so similar that you're able to move from one to the other without much adjustment. Um, Absolutely. And what I like also is that it brings me to something I found really powerful in uh, a description of your writing. And it was something that was attributed to you, which is a desire on your part to write stories of inspiration and determination and with those who have a vital message to bring. And that brought to mind two really interesting questions that I wanted to pose for you. And the first is, um, why stories of inspiration and determination? What part of you do they speak to? Um, and what part of and what is that that they're speaking to that then compels you to say, these are the stories I want to write about. These are the stories I write about. Well, these are the stories that um, I am driven to write if it's if it's a drive or if it's de defined in another way. But those stories of inspiration and determination speak to you. And I'm curious if you can define or give us a, a definition in your mind of, of the why and the how that they do. I think that um, I'm attracted to heroic efforts. And when I define a hero, hey, look, our whole society is taken up with heroes. I mean, you know, the Marvel comic books, you, you know about that whole world. I mean, they're, they're the biggest movies in, in history. And they've, they, um, you know, the dramas um, sometimes barely pay for themselves. But um, if you had a story about a superhero, someone who overcame great odds. So we're kind of infatuated with superheroes. And we've been a culture addicted to superheroes since, you know, when they were invented after uh, before World War II. But what about the everyday heroes? That's what infatuated me with Cesar Chavez. Here's a man with an eighth grade education who overcomes obstacles that many people had tried to, to overcome in a hundred years of labor action in, in California. And here's a diminutive five point five foot five 
eighth grade education, everything against him. He's a Mexican, you know, he's thought of as a Mexican, which is a pejorative term in that time, um, treated as a Mexican, as a second class citizen, and says, you know what? I'm American and I'm not going to be treated this way. I mean, doesn't that inspire you? Immensely so. I mean, yeah. anytime someone takes it's a like, stand for what they know and believe is right and says, you know, no more. Um, no more. I mean, we're all I, inspired by those those um, those black students in 19, um, was it 62 or 63? You know, they're waiting for Martin Luther King to do something and is nonviolent and bring him justice down there in North South Carolina. And they said, you know, we're just going to do it on our own. And they left the college. They went to the to the um, five and dime and they bought things and they sat at the counter and started to sit in. And many people think, of, well, it's Martin Luther King that started it all. Well, he was the insp inspiration for these students to take action on their own part and started that national movement of students and everyday people just dressing up in suits and ties. And going down and sitting at a counter until the uh, racist uh, store owner said, okay, you know, you we have to treat you the same way we treat other people. We're not going to take this anymore. So that's, you know, if you have a choice of all the stories you're going to spend your time writing, I just have decided this is what I'm going to spend my time writing. I get calls all the time for people to... Um, you know, I want you to write my book and, you know, and unless the story inspires me, I, I just move on. And it, unless I think it would inspire other people. Did you overcome some odds? You know, what did you do? And um, how did you do this? And these are the stories people want to hear. I mean, don't you don't we get enough bad news? <laughs> We do. We we get plenty. We get our fair share. We get more than I think. Uh, you know, I've been sometimes I've been reading literature care. my whole life, and I'll tell you, I you spend eight hours in a book, and at the end, you're not anywhere near, you're not any farther along emotionally than when you started. And I think well, I'm not going to read those books anymore. You know, but um, well, there was. There's something that intrigues me, too, because I, I appreciate the way you brought in our infatuation and obsession with uh, superhero movies like the Marvel movies. Um, and I'm also intrigued because in many ways, they're also pointing to that same idea of standing up for something. Many of them are super powered, but um, it reminded me of there was in one of the movies, it was the Civil War, which was an interesting approach to what do heroes stand for and when one of their actions called into question or judgment. But there's a speech given by one of the characters at a funeral describing what it was like to have an aunt who was a woman during her, you know, a time when it was not common for women to take on responsibilities or to have leadership roles. And, you know, what it was like to deal with opposition. And there's a popular quote from that that says, compromise where you can and where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you something is wrong or something wrong is right, and even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and, and say, no, you move. And you, know, you have this uh, route that they're drawing from from those movies, and yet 
With Cesar Chavez, you have a real life example of somebody without any of those powers, somebody That's with right. all the limitations you are describing. And even with those is um, strident enough, is empowered enough, is willing to make the sacrifices you were describing by saying, no, in this moment, I'm saying you're going to have to move. I've made my stance. I've drawn a line in the sand. I will move no longer. Um, it's it's time for you to, you know, make that move. And and I'm intrigued because you also mentioned that stories that have a vital to message are very important to you. It, was there a sound when you were looking into Cesar Chavez? Was there a, a a tone that you recognize with his story that, that caused you to see what was, um, you know, a larger story being told. And in that process where that vital message existed, do you recognize it in other works as well? When you're, you're looking for that message to share, does it, does it sort of have a, a voice or a sound or is there a way that you can describe what it's like recognizing that? You mean recognize the heroic uh, the vital message, you know, you mentioned that you write stories of inspiration and determination and those who have a vital message to bring. You know, it's it's important to stand, but it's also important what well, you're standing when for. When I'm, when I'm interviewing a potential client, mm -hmm. you know, um, I get those things out of them. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and I'm not denigrating um, the divorce experience. I personally have been divorced and it's very horrific. But. Um, you know, the persecuted story that um, is not one I want to do. And I don't think, you know, it's it's out of vogue anymore. And for a while there, you know, the the persecuted wife or the persecuted husband was a was a big part of the memoir. And, um, you know, how we escaped from um, and, you know, how we got away from the the abuse and. Um, those, those are important stories, but those are stories I, I'm, I'm not cut out to do. So, but I am cut out to, to, to write stories of someone who grew up in abject poverty and, um, maybe an abusive home, but, you know, the abuse wasn't the issue. The, the, the problem was the poverty that, you know, the, um, you know, just not much opportunity, but what opportunity they did have, they took advantage of it. And those are the type of inspirational stories that um, that people want to hear. And I think that's that's what attracts people to the Marvel thing, to the Marvel uh, franchise. Mm -hmm. You know, is that these people, these with superpowers, overcome all of these enemies, and there's some form of justice at the end. Maybe not at the end of one movie, but at the end of a series. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a hunger for, for you know, for justice in this world. There's a hunger for, um, you know, someone to stand up and put things right. We don't have, in real life, we don't have superpowers. All we have is our life. And that's what Cesar Chavez said constantly. He goes, the poor... We have all the time in the world. We're just going to keep doing this until um, they see us, until they give us our dignity, until they see us as the humans we are. Think wow. about it. So, yeah. you know, he'd always say that. 
you know, are you on a timetable? You've been at this five years, nothing's said. We're poor. We can't lose anymore. We already, we already live in the worst housing. We have the worst food. We, you know, we got the bad working conditions. It can't get any, get any worse. So oh, we, we got time. We'll just keep doing what we're doing here. And, you know, it's patience. It's perseverance. It's resilience. You see it in people um, who come out of poverty and through. I, I just read someone sent me a story today about this young African-American boy in Ohio who parents were very poor. But every day after school, and I don't know how young he started, but he walked to the library every day to get into an after school program to get his homework done. And he did it, I guess, through junior high and through high school. And uh, this past year, he was accepted into 12, scholar 12 scholar colleges, offered him full scholarships. Hmm. So you think, how do people get out of poverty? Well, someone gave him money. Or someone gave him a leg up. Or someone did something for him. Well, most times, it's somebody doing something for themselves taking advantage of the opportunities they have in front of them. To me, those are heroes. Hmm. And with you know, good reason, I, you know, they had to. What's the superpower that we all have? It's our character. That's a, that's a really great statement. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. And I, I agree. It's the character that defines the actions that we're willing to take for the things we believe in for this. Exactly. it. You know, hmm. and, Think of Martin Luther King down there, you know, he knew his day would come. The night before he was shot, you know, he said, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be with you when you get into the promised land. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to see it. So I don't know if he had a premonition, but you think people willing to go to, I didn't have to ever do that, but I've had to persevere to be a writer. So I know a little bit about that. But um, and you can recognize the uh, the resolve, the commitment, the decision to, to resolve. Ask, and a friend of mine who who works with um, the poor and the the uh, down and out, the people that that make it have resilience. That the people that get. Um, out of the barrio, out of the projects, um, out of the abject poverty, and take advantage of the opportunities in front of us, have resilience. They have a lot of other character, but it's resilience. In other words, the bad situation isn't going to defeat them. And Cesar Chavez, if he had anything, he didn't have education, he didn't have money, uh, but he had resilience. He refused to give up. And so I, I just go, wow, I would give up. <laughs> I, I remember um, I was talking to a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, a really quality writer. And we're comparing notes. What are you talking about? And I was telling him about doing this book. And he said to me, I don't one thing I don't ever understand about Cesar Chavez. Why didn't you just go out and get another job? You see, I'm thinking. You just don't have any idea what he was doing. You need to read my book. <laughs> you know? But uh, um, 
but I mean, for us, you know, in our world, someone mistreats us. We just say, oh, you know, here's my resignation. You know, I'll just go down the street. But a lot of people don't have that option. So um, what is their option? They're they're backed into a corner, and that's where Cesar Chavez was. And so he purposely left a really good job to identify with the farm workers because he knew that was his calling. He knew he could do it. Mm. So that's that was his road to Delano. And so everyone has a road that they have to take. So I hope you get to read the book. And um, maybe you could um, send me your address and I'll make sure you get a book. Ah, well, I really appreciate that. Thank you, John. I I, I will. I, I, uh, you know, I, I want to take a moment to, you know, talk about something that I briefly mentioned before we started recording, but it's the fact I want to thank you for bringing this story uh, to light for me because I have a personal connection with um, the history of farm workers. My father grew up picking cotton and grapes in the Central Valley outside of Fresno, a little town called Layton. And that was the family business. His parents had migrated from uh, Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl era. And tenable work, work they could try and survive on, was being offered in California. It was the only place they could go. They had limited education, limited resources, and a, a family to raise. And that's what he was born into. And his experience is something that I can only understand through the stories he would share in brief snippets as I was growing up. And then as I got to an age where he could talk to me as an adult, he began to open up more about it. But I'm also aware that he had to, in his own experience, um, he ended up going off to uh, fight in Vietnam. He avoided the draft on the recommendation from a uh, brother who'd come back from Korea and said, you know, I'm a mourner man with no experience. You need a career. And he changed his destiny by going in and signing up to um, enlist with the Air Force and getting a trade uh, experience and education in radio communication, which is how he provided for our family for all of my life. And understanding that history and knowing that there was a part of him that had to turn away from uh, the farm work in order to you know look at what was coming his way and, and how he could best adapt to it has always uh, interrupted the narrative that I've been able to experience and Grapes of Wrath, uh, Ask the Dust, uh, a few other great books that have pointed out what the time like uh, there was. But I feel like also, you know, there's only so much that can be gleaned from each book that with each book you have a chance to inform more about what you know and think you know. And I'm looking forward to that experience with The Road to Delano because uh, I'm also married to um, a woman who's Filipina, has a history in California that connects to the Manongs, which are the Filipino men who were able to come to the United States, but only by themselves without their family. And it was their good example as workers sending back money as the uh, lonely um, explorers who came here and sought a way to make things possible for those that they wanted to follow after them. And and for those who did eventually, they they sort of look at them with a great degree of respect and recognition for the sacrifice that they've made as well. So hearing about this story is really powerful for both sides of the family, one that I was raised in and one that I've married into. And I'm, I'm really um, impressed 
by the way that you've uh, opened another way of looking at that history and those histories through the story of Road to Delano with the moral premise of Cesar Chavez and then using that backdrop to tell the story of Jack and Adrian. Uh, I've been really enjoying myself sharing this story with you, talking about it with you, learning uh, as much as I enjoy personally, as I hope others who are listening will get to. With all of that being said, there's there's a part of me that has to also say there's got to be more down the pipeline. You're, you, you just mentioned you finished up a project with another client. For those who will read this book and want hunger to read your earlier works and also to see what's on the horizon, is there something else that they and I can look forward to after we finish Road to Delano? Is there another well, book I on the horizon? Work, I'm, we'll I'm, I'm working on the sequel to it. and um, You I'd did like hint at that, but I wanted to kind of wait till the end before we dug into that a little yeah, bit. So, a sequel. I, yeah, because as violent as the first strike was in 1970, uh, so in 1970, 69, 70, they, um, UFW, that's the United Farm Workers, signed a three-year contract with the majority of the growers. They caved in, and there was peace in the valley, peace in Central Valley. And it worked. The day that the um, the contracts ended, um, the union was in negotiation with the farmers for another three years. But the um, farmers instead, the growers, signed a sweetheart deal, turning over all of their contracts to the Teamsters. So this is the Teamsters of post-Jimmy Hoffa. Mm -hmm. They're still dominated by the mafia. They're the most uh, corrupt union. Bobby Kennedy had been after them. I mean, um, he's dead. Jimmy Hoffa's out of the picture. But the son of Hoffa's there. And the Teamsters don't care at all about the Mexican workers. They don't believe the Mexican... they don't believe that these farm workers, the Mexicans. Have, so the next three years is even more violent and more difficult until Governor Brown resolves the issue in 76. So um, there's a good story there, a lot of story there. And um, and I have it all in my head and and I'm sure I'll get around to writing it when I get in between all these other projects I'm doing. Certainly. But a sequel is something uh, for everyone who will have the chance to read Road to Delano to look forward to. And also, I think it's important that while there is a period of um, accomplishment and resolution that occurs um, historically set against uh, the story of Road to Delano, that wasn't the only chapter in the story that, that once that, resolution and um, an agreement was made that existed for a period of time. But then the pushback was greater and the conflict um, became even more entrenched, if not more difficult, and that the solutions would become more complicated. You know, it started out with... Because now they saw the UFW, you know, Cesar Chavez, Larry Itolong, Dolores Huerta. Now they saw them as arch enemies instead of just you know, um, 
you know, peon workers that we don't really want to negotiate with, and we did negotiate with them. Now they've said, we don't want to see you at all. We don't think your union is is um, not something we want to deal with, and um, we don't even want to negotiate with you. We're happy with the, with the uh, Teamsters. So the Teamsters would come in, and um, they were notorious for taking money out of their um, pension. I mean, that's and they would lend it out, and, and um, that's a lot of the way that the early Las Vegas was built on, on Teamster pension money. Hmm. And they would lend it um, at um, reduced rates to to big growers. So the grower would sign a sweetheart deal and get a big loan from the union pension at, um, at uh, reduced rates and, you know, you know, friend of the family rates. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a sweetheart deal. It's something the UFW didn't have those type of resources. They couldn't, they couldn't help finance, you know, their, their um, operation. And the, and anyway, so that's, that's a really big story. And um, that's where I originally thought I would set my uh, book uh, but decided ultimately to set it in the first strike. Well, I think we're all going to agree with your choice, especially because now it affords the opportunity to tell before that time period and uh, through it a great historical fiction novel. But then also now there's a chance to tell uh, that original conflict that you have been looking at in a sequel. And that's kind of the best of both worlds, right? I mean, I you, you so. were looking to, to write at one point, and now you get to write about both. Uh, that's a, it's a pretty great opportunity. And I know that those who are curious about this, who have read Road to Delano and will be reading it, will be encouraged by the idea that this story continues because it's based on a history that didn't stop when the uh, ending to Road to Delano is read, that there's more to it and there's a sequel to go with it. And now, John, um, this is always my favorite question because it gives me the opportunity to find out something I never considered. And that's to ask you if there's something that I didn't ask you today or if there's something that through the course of our conversation didn't get addressed. But before we leave is something you would like to make sure is included or that um, is something people are aware of before they... uh, Seth, you were very generous and let me to let me allowed me to talk at length on a lot of different things. But um, I think we've covered just about everything. We, you know, we covered, uh, you know, the heroic. If if I haven't made it clear, I really do believe that um, Cesar Chavez is what I call a cultural hero. In other words, um, yes, he's an Hispanic hero as. And um, but he is someone that if we look at his life, he didn't have the pretty flowery speeches that MLK had. And um, he wasn't a fluent speaker in that in that way. Um, But he certainly was an inspirational person. And if we look at his life as one of uh, resilience and tenacity and determination and self-sacrifice, it's an example to us. How do you change a culture? You don't change a culture, uh, our culture, through war and um, riots. 
um, look what has happened with riots in the city that accomplishes absolutely nothing. Mm. But um, here's a man who did it uh, differently and is a permanent uh, memorial to him and his and his stand. And it's an inspiration. I think that's what makes him a cultural hero. It's what makes Martin Luther King, you know, a cultural hero is that um, he's above his sect and above his race. And he's someone that all of us could look at, no matter what race or sect or position we are and uh, learn from him. I think that's an example of great of almost all great heroes. They're the ones that we can look and see ourselves in, that we can see our best selves in. And I mean, um, when you think about it, Seth, how do we look up to Superman? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come we just, on. Yeah, we we, we really can't. <laughs> it's you more know, of an Batman. awe than anything. Maybe you Batman, know, you know, if we're if we could come up with that type of technology. But here's a guy of, of just humble means who used what he had in front of him, took advantage of his opportunities, saw need and committed his life to us. And to me, that is a cultural hero. We have a lot of sports heroes who are cultural heroes. And, um, you know, the first people to do something, Arthur Ashe, the first black man to to win major tennis tournaments and the first women to run, do this. And I mean, we're really in now into you know, the first people that do things. And so I think he's would certainly be in the pantheon of our cultural heroes. And um, so that's what I admire about him. And with good reason. And I would agree with you. I believe he is in our pantheon of cultural heroes. And I love the fact that there is another chapter in which to view his life, the impact, the implications, and the reason that he chose to act to lead and the movement that was inspired because of it. Um, You've got a really powerful, compelling story here, John. And I I thank you for taking the time to share it with us, to answer all of my questions. I know I get extensive. I like to be thorough and uh, your willingness to, to share as much as you have with us today has uh, really been a blessing, you know, for anyone who's out there that might want to make contact with you, let you know what they thought, um, learn more about what you're doing, what you've done, and and how they can um, sort of follow along your journey uh, up till now and into the future. Where are the best ways that people can find you? Social media, email, how can they contact you, make a connection, let you know what their thoughts are, or any of those sort of uh, things that sure. people like to do when uh, they've read something they enjoy or hear something they enjoy? Uh, John D. Simone, D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E. Uh, that's my website, johndsimone.com, Facebook, uh, John D. Simone Author. Uh, anyone's welcome to message me or contact me. And then, um, obviously, my Facebook. And then, of course, you can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all the all the usual places, Books A Million. And... Um, I hope people get to to read it. It's Rhoda Delano, John D. Simone. Find it anywhere, anywhere that you buy books. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, please keep in mind that if you weren't able to jot all that down, I will be providing all that information in the liner notes. You can go ahead there at your leisure, take a peek, find the best way to 
follow what John's been doing, what he uh, has coming ahead, what he's already done, and all the ways you can make contact with him if that's something you'd like to do. And with that, John, I want to, again, thank you for coming on today, sharing your story, the story of Road to Delano, and giving us a chance to talk about a great cultural figure, a hero, uh, a man who represents uh, exactly what you were talking about, a story of inspiration and determination. And that's something that we got a chance to uh, really feel the inspiration from today with the discussion you provided. So thank you for being here today. Thank you, Seth. My pleasure. pleasure. Ah. <laughs> Likewise. Uh, and that brings us to a close for this episode of Storytelling with Seth. This brings episode number 72 in my conversation with John D. Simone to a close. I really enjoyed discussing his novel, The Road to Delano, and through our conversation exploring California's history and the connections it shares with my own personal history as the son of a farm worker. The backdrop against which this story is set is a powerful moment in history that reflects the movement led by not just one man, like Cesar Chavez, but the many men and women who worked in the fields to make sure that we all have enough produce in our stores, on our shelves, and in our homes. How they were overlooked and underrepresented, but eventually found support and a form of vindication, if not a step towards equal opportunity and representation, was a powerful experience that I was lucky enough to share with John during our conversation. If you'd like to hear more, please keep in mind that all the information John shared regarding his contacts and how to reach him will be available in the liner notes of this episode. And of course, if you want to reach out to me, Seth Singleton, your host, and let me know about what your thoughts were regarding this conversation or any conversation you've heard on here, please feel free to contact me on all of your favorite channels, whether it's Seth the Writer on Instagram, or my Twitter account, One More Singleton. Of course, you can always just go to my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller, and my Facebook page of the same name. And you can always just send me an email if you'd like. Let me know what you thought about this story. And if you have a story that you believe is not being represented, needs to be shared, or would benefit from exposure on a platform like Storytelling with Seth, well then please use all of those ways I suggested to reach out to find me. And you can always just send me an email at sethsingleton at gmail. I'd love to hear your stories. I would love to share them with you. And I thank you for tuning in today and listening to my conversation with John D. Simone. Our topic, The Road to Delano, Farm Workers' Rights, and the many important players who are responsible for that movement. To make sure you never miss another episode of Storytelling with Seth, I'm going to encourage you to go to that little subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, or one of the many others I didn't get a chance to mention this time, but know is how you're receiving this content. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review, and of course, if you believe that this is a program you would like to support, please click that support button and explore the ways that you can be a financial supporter of Storytelling with Seth. I'm here to bring the stories to you, but I can't do it without your help. And it's your continued support, assistance, and 
your willingness to listen and share these stories, that makes all of this worth doing. Thank you again for tuning in. Look forward to next time when I get a chance to share another story with you.